When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the regions of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit kept them from speaking the word in the province of Asia. When they approached the province of Mysia, they tried to enter the province of Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas instead. A vision of a man from Macedonia came to Paul in the night. He stood urging Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. Immediately after he saw the vision, we prepared to leave for the province of Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We sailed from Troas straight from Samothrace and came to Neapolis the following day. And there we went to Philippi, a city of Macedonia's first district in a Roman colony. We stayed in that city several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the river bank, where we thought there might be a place for prayer. We sat down and began to talk with the women who had gathered. One of those women was Lydia, a Gentile God-worshipper from the city of Theatira, a dealer in purple cloth. As she listened, the Lord enabled her to embrace Paul's message. Once she and her household were baptized, she urged, Now that you have decided that I am a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house and she persuaded us. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Thanks be to God. This section from Acts and Acts 16 is the account of the first church in Europe. For most people's perceptions, Christianity is a European thing. At this time of year, Many Episcopalians are, well, many, many are um, going to Europe to see the cathedrals. It's kind of what you do when you go there to look at these churches built in stone. And they seem like they go back forever, that they've been there forever, that somehow Christians in Europe have existed from the dawn of time. And yet, this is the moment in which Christianity moves from being an exclusively Asian and African religion to becoming a European religion. Southwest Asia, or Jerusalem, being the starting point. And then we have the Ethiopian eunuch in Africa and some other expansions into North Africa and Eastern Africa. But this is the moment of of European connection. And it comes from a vision that Paul has. They were to go to um, one place, and they had a vision. The Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them. This strange phrasing of Spirit of Jesus should be noted. That this is who the early church saw the Holy Spirit to be, to be the Spirit of Jesus. It comes into our creed, proceeds from the Father and the Son. If you've been noticing on Sunday morning, 
since we've been using enriching our worship, when we say the Nicene Creed, we don't have the phrase and the Son in there, who proceeds from the Father. With the Father and Son, he is worshipped and glorified, referring to the Holy Spirit. But this idea that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son, the Spirit of Jesus, well, this is one of the texts by which that teaching is established. The Enriching Our Worship Nicene Creed that we've been using um, is an older creed. It does not include that phrase, and the Son. Around the time of Charlemagne, the Western Catholic Church, the European Church, if you will, added that phrase to the Nicene Creed. And it's been a source of contention ever since between Asian Christians and European Christians. Anglicans, those of us here in North America, tend to follow the more Western or European Catholic tradition on most things, as that's where we got our start with St. Augustine of Canterbury going from Rome and France to England and starting the missions there. But this is the moment in the book of Acts when this happens. A vision of the man in Macedonia standing there by Paul's bed at night. Kind of a strange phenomena to happen while you're trying to sleep. And he keeps saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So they get ready to go. And they get there, they sail, they go, they go, da-da-da-da. And the person that they first meet in Europe is, in fact, not a man at all. It is a woman. Strange that the vision would have a man from Macedonia, very clearly. His pronouns are used quite often in this first part of chapter 16. A vision of a man of Macedonia. He stood urging Paul, come over to help us. Immediately after he saw the vision, so at least two references to this person in the vision being a man, as Paul perceived him. And then when he gets there, there isn't a man to be found. It is, in fact, Lydia, who is one of the, um, one of the people in the New Testament, prominent women, who we have her name and we have a lot of information about her, which, again, as we often say, is kind of rare in the New Testament to get a woman's name and details about her life. But here he is there at this Roman colony um, there, and he meets this woman, and he meets her in a place where people go to pray down by the riverside. Uh, Melanie played that song at the Trinity Center on Sunday, down by the riverside. And uh, this is, this is per- not the, the only origin of that hymn, that song, gospel song, Uh, But here we have a scene very much like that. Down at the riverbank, down at the riverside, outside the city gate. Um, What are these women doing down there at the riverbank? This might be a place where they did laundry and other tasks that they would have have to have done, perhaps. We don't really know much about their laundry lives. Uh, But this, that's something people do down at the riverbanks 
all around the world. But they are praying there. Their prayer lives are integrated with the kind of daily tasks that need to be done, whether it's drawing water or perhaps laundry or some other business that they're doing. It says something about Lydia that she's a Gentile. She's not Jewish, but she is a God worshiper. So she's attending the synagogue there in that town. So she wants to follow the one true and only God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says that it is the Lord. This is in reference to that spirit of Jesus that told them not to go somewhere else, but to go here enabled her to embrace Paul's message. She's baptized. Um, And then she urges Paul and the other others to stay in her home. There's another detail about her. Um, It says she's a dealer in purple cloth. And I find this to be so fascinating. Purple cloth, the symbol of royalty was greatly prized in the ancient world. The dye that is used to make this purple cloth, as I've said many times, you've probably heard it from me, but maybe you haven't, I don't know, um, is from a small uh, shell-borne animal, a bivalve, a crustacean. I'll have to look up the taxonomy on this one. But a small little, like, conch, conch, uh, that lives in a little shell, And you can extract the purple dye one of two ways. You can pinprick the animal in the shell and little tiny bits of this purple dye drip out, or you can crush it all together and get a larger amount of dye out. This dye was greatly prized in the world of Paul and others. It was extremely expensive. There are accounts that it got brighter with sunlight exposure. Um, And all the Romans, um, senators especially, would have had this dyed garments on the edges of their togas, denoting their rank in society. But you can imagine all the different uses of these textiles and fabric dyes in that time, a very sought after thing. And so she's made a good living. She has room in her house for guests. Um, she has made a good living as a dealer in purple cloth. Whether she's doing the dyeing or not, it's hard to know, but um, it's definitely she is a dealer of this fabric and cloth and dye, which um, is very notable to have her profession listed. She's not somebody's wife, not somebody's mother, although she may be all those things. Um, but one, th- two things she is. She is a leader, a prayer leader, and she's a business person, um, a dealer, a merchant, um, a CEO, if you will. Uh, and she is the one that organizes this church. She is the one that gets it started. We must always recognize that in the gender binaries of life and the spheres that women are supposed to inhabit, and even after decades of deconstructing this and trying to, um, trying to declare publicly that men and women share equally in 
the life of the world and should be accorded and afforded equal opportunities for leadership and life, we still uh, have not really gotten that far when it comes to equality, especially in the church. Um, I listen. I listen to what people say about other clergy colleagues of mine. It's always strange that when there's these very vague complaints about a clergy person that are so vague that you're not really sure what they did or didn't do. Um, And it often boils down to that they're simply a woman. And that's what is being criticized in their ministry. Um, I've heard it so many times, and I try to call it out or ask more questions to try to remind God's faithful people that um, that uh, being a woman is not in any way a disqualification for ministry in the Episcopal Church. It is, in fact, um, a sharing of the grace of God that's been poured out in our church. This weekend is the anniversary of the Philadelphia 11, the first 11 women ordained in the Episcopal Church in the United States. Um, this witness to, um, I think we're coming up on 50 years this week, um, this witness to the role and leadership of women in the church is something that we don't apologize for and we don't really argue much about, thankfully. And yet our prejudices are still seen. Um, we ought to examine that in our, in our common life and challenge it when people seem to indicate that that is somehow a disqualification for ministry. In fact, here in the book of Acts, it is the qualification for ministry. Lydia becomes a leader of this church. She's organizing it. She's resourcing it. She's facilitating it. And Paul will be there for a little while, and then he's gone. And she will be there to lead. We thank God for Lydia. We thank God for all the people in the church that um, have led the church. And this switcheroo that the Holy Spirit pulls on Paul, saying, having a man come and announce, come over to Macedonia and help us, and then there being a woman leader, um, is the the scandal of grace that always happens to our prejudices when we have said, I think God ought to do something a certain way. Uh, we often find that God has completely changed what we thought would happen. And to go with that, what I love about this text is Paul never complains about that. He never says, oh, wait, there was supposed to be a man here. Where's the man I was supposed to talk to? Where's the man that showed up in the vision? He never says that at all. In fact, he just recognizes that the spirit um, is not bound by the gender binaries of life that we have constructed for ourselves and for other people especially. Um, Paul recognizes that it is the spirit that has led him there. And whether he has been led to a man in the vision or to a woman at the riverbank, it doesn't really matter. What matters is there, a, there is now a church in Europe, and there has been one ever since. And we have been, um, in many ways, inheritors of that tradition.
and we thank God for it. Today, the church remembers Joseph of Arimathea. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. He very bravely and boldly intervened with Pilate himself, the most violent man in the whole New Testament, enshrouded in our creed. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, one of the three people mentioned in the creed. And Joseph of Arimathea risks it all to confront him, to ask for the body of Jesus after his crucifixion, while the rest of the disciples were hiding. I think Joseph of Arimathea is an example of participation in the life of the church, that people participate in different ways. We might criticize Joseph of Arimathea during the early days of Jesus' ministry for not being part of things. And yet there he was, always there in the background. And at the moment he's most needed, he shows up. We are often quick to criticize the involvement of people in the church or lack of involvement. What's wrong with them? Why aren't they there? Um, And yet Joseph of Arimathea shows up precisely at the most risky time to courageously ask for the body of Jesus. We honor him every Sunday. Well, we don't honor him. We honor Jesus by following his example. When we carry the bread and the wine down the aisle to be consecrated at the altar. And I know um, I really can't go to the back and organize this every Sunday, but if you're back there and you see one person carrying the bread and the wine, I would invite you to help out. We always need two people to carry the bread and the wine. And we do that because Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus carry the body of Jesus from the crucifixion. And two people carry Jesus' body, and so we do that today, although I'm not always in the back to make sure that two people are carrying it. So if you happen to see that, you are Joseph of Arimathea. You are Nicodemus when you do that. Um, He offered his newly dug tomb to Jesus, Uh, This was a lavish gift to Jesus. Um, I'm not sure if he knew he'd only be using it for three days, but he still gives it to Jesus. This tomb that was going to mark Joseph of Arimathea as one of the righteous for eternity. This tomb that would be so notable that when people passed by, they would say, what a great man, Joseph of Arimathea was. Instead of taking that honor for himself, he gives it to to Jesus. We don't know anything about him from the Bible after that. His story ends at that moment um, that we know. But legends developed in later centuries about Joseph's possible leadership in the church. There are medieval traditions connecting him to Glastonbury, in Great Britain. However, Joseph's remembrance depends primarily upon the gospel narratives of Jesus' burial, 
attesting to his devotion, his generous compassion, and his brave willingness to take action on behalf of another when such action mattered. So we commemorate Joseph Arimathea. Perhaps he's buried in Glastonbury in England. Perhaps not. It doesn't really matter because the great moment of his life was not being buried in his own tomb, but bringing Jesus' body to be buried there. He is creating the scene of resurrection with his own act of brave love. Merciful God, whose servant Joseph of Arimathea, with reverence and godly fear, prepared the body of our Lord and Savior for burial and laid it in his own tomb, grant to us, your faithful people, grace and courage to love and serve Jesus with sincere devotion all the days of our life, through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.